but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Episode 263 finds us right after the completion of Madrid and at the beginning of Roma. Yeah, you you pronounce the hell out of that. <laughs> We've been to Rome once. It was not a great time. We saw about 11 minutes of tennis over the two days we were there. No, not complaining because Rome is amazing. I actually didn't really care that much about the tennis because I love Rome so much. Mm -hmm. And just so happened that with that trip, you weren't feeling well. And then it was raining. Do you remember when we finally got into Pietrangeli and we're supposed to watch Wozniacki and somebody? And Danielle Collins, I think. Yes. And then one of them pulled out, withdrew, mm -hmm. and then... Sat on that that marble slab and it was over in like two minutes like what what just happened i think the only tennis we saw was a set of curios on centrale and then the outer courts we saw she as well del potro and a few other people the day that we flew out of rome the day we left the very next day it was one of the most packed schedules in modern tennis history mm -hmm. no exaggeration Rafa like, was on the grandstand every goat was there <laughs> someday i'd like to go back and experience that tournament properly and hopefully by then you will have removed all your your ill memories of that time yeah yeah because you were not in a good headspace oh no i wanted to leave yeah and i at wasn't one feeling point, well at and... one point i was like you know what fuck it let's just go i'm not dealing with you right now <laughs> ben rothenberg tweeted um today about how there's always so many kids at the rome tournament and that is definitely true i observed that that day and that on that particular day i was not in the mood to be around children but it's that is very different from any tennis tournament I've ever been to. It's it felt like school classes were taking field trips to the tennis. There were so mm -hmm. many kids. And it's just cool to see that atmosphere. Like the the fans in Rome, the place is jam-packed on a like a midday session and people are really excited to be there. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that you spent a semester in Rome and You'd always be like, oh, I want to take you to Rome. I want to show you where I was studied, all this, all that. For whatever reason, I, I saw that tournament as a way of taking in a lot of Roman culture, Rome mm -hmm. culture. And you sure did. Because those kids. <laughs> right. But that was the part of Rome culture that you would probably despise the most. And so while I was like eager to get into it, you were just like... <laughs> <laughs> completely over it so i did an internship teaching at a middle school while i was there and let me tell you those kids were i mean they were darling they were sweet but they are wild holy shit weren't there like sons of princes and shit yeah it was a public school but it was like super in this very you know ancient neighborhood and they all everybody had you know relatives who had titles and stuff anyway we were in madrid not us, but tennis mm -hmm. was in Madrid. You've heard about the men's side. 
let's start with Anz Shabur, the woman who just cannot stop being the first woman to do things. The first Arab or North African woman to win a WTA 1000 title. Well, the more she has success, then the more that's going to continue. Yeah. Unless there's another one who comes up. And hopefully there will be. Uh, But Anz was the first Arab woman to win a title. Now she's the first to win a a 1000 title. And this is without the benefit that so many other players have of endless wildcards, of federations with tons of cash in countries that have big important tournaments in them. This has been uh, a labor of love. Outsourcing your training and your team to people from other countries once you have a little bit of a success. She didn't do that. She still kept her team homegrown, essentially. The point is this, I don't think, is something that a lot of people foresaw for Anshabur. It's a breath of fresh air for WTA tennis, but it is not something the sport is set up to support at the moment. This was her sixth career final. Previously, she was one in four. Just a few weeks ago, she lost to Belinda Bencic in the final of Charleston. And this week, she gets revenge. In her own words, a lot of this week was about getting revenge. Yeah, she exercised a few demons, a few bugaboos, right? She beat Belinda Bencic for the first time in three meetings. She was able to overcome these jitters that she gets in finals. She had lost four, as you said, coming into this final. And she had a lapse in in the second set, right? Like the jitters were still there. But the fact that she was able to play really such a poor second set and then come out and switch the momentum super early in the third, it's saying something about uh, how she is a different player than she was. She didn't start playing that second set poorly. She had break point to take a set and a break lead in that second set. And it was competitive. Deuces upon deuces. However, eventually, once Pegula got her footing in that second set, she just sped away with it. Yes, yes. The errors kind of crept in for Ons. She wasn't very strong on serve. I think she was winning like less than 40% of her first serve points in that set. And then early in the third, gets a break and doesn't look back. Right. Moving toward the biggest title of your career, there were no stumbles in that third set. She was able to kind of mentally isolate that second set and it seemed like you know you look at it from the outside and say well that was my bad set it happened and I'm gonna move on I'm gonna win this it helps when you lose a set like that and it doesn't feel irreversible Mm -hmm. she was still competitive in spots and it Pegula hadn't rested the initiative completely in that match now I really enjoyed uh Jesse Pegula on Twitter after SAP shared a stat, like the keys to the match for Jesse were to hit hard and flat. And she replied, as if I do anything else, lol. And I think for this reason, like it can be hard for people to get into Jesse Pegula's game. Like if you asked me to describe her game, I wouldn't really have a whole lot to tell you. Hard and flat, uh, <laughs> right? It makes it so, aside from being like really, really rich, I feel like people don't really know that much about her or the way she plays. Really, really rich, you see. Yeah, her parents, I guess, you know. The well, rich rich people always say, no, my parents are This rich. was such a contrast of tennis resources in women's tennis, mm. this match, right? You have the daughter of a billionaire 
who presumably has had every resource imaginable at her disposal. And then you have Anjabur, who's pulled herself up by the proverbial bootstraps, right? Has to mm. make her own path to the top of women's tennis. One, and you could say that they both were unlikely paths, that notwithstanding, right? right. right? The one thing I will say about Jessica Gula is that if you've been paying attention to the rise in her game, to her success, yeah, there are a lot of folks who are, you know, side-eyeing, like, well, oh, if I had that much behind me, I could probably make the top 10 too. You know, like, kind of not really taking her success seriously because of daddy's wealth, mm-hmm. essentially, right? There's <laughs> yes. that. But if you follow along and you see all the results and how she's interacting with players and the way her peers receive her, it seems as though to me that she's one of the more universally liked players on tour. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say anything bad about Jessup Kula. Yeah, and she has a great presence on social media as well. Now, I'm not really here for like any kind of pity party for a billionaire, you know, but there are many, many supremely untalented children of billionaires. I think you could just... Look at the Trumps. You could just say heiress. She's not a billionaire herself. You sound like a rich kid. They always say that. She's an heiress at this point. I don't know. What what do you want to say? (laughs) No, I'm just saying... I'm just saying, like, money doesn't buy you talent. It does give you, certainly give you a leg up, right? But if you have no talent, you're not doing anything. Look at Trump's children. They're all zeros. Yes. So your point here is that her efforts and her game and her success still deserves plaudits. Correct. But not a pity party. Certainly not. (laughs) We were literally just saying on this show a few episodes ago about how the woman's top 10 finally reflected the best performers. And you have here (laughs) written, and now, sure, Iga has left no scraps, but still. This um, is your segment. It is. So let me tell you, I was looking through like our agendas from recent episodes. I guess I, I do that every once in a while for inspiration. And at some point, I think it might have been like in February, we were talking about, oh, wow, you know, finally the top 10 really feels like it reflects the people who've been playing well over the past 12 months because the COVID rankings are pretty much good, done. Uh, you know, Garbinier made her way into the top 10 finally, etc. And now I'm looking at the top 10. I'm like, what happened over the past three months? What the hell? Krejcikova comes, rises back to number two after not playing at all because Bedosa lost points by not uh, equaling her semifinal berth in Madrid last year. Also, Sabalenka is down to number eight after failing to defend her Madrid points from a year ago. Right. Pliskova had that hand injury and has had just not a very successful comeback from that yet. Danielle Collins hasn't really done much since reaching the Australian Open final. Garbina is nowhere to be found. Maria Sakkari did reach two finals. So, you know, good on her. But this top 10 feels quite a bit different than it did. And I do realize that Iga winning all of the titles has sort of colored our view of this. Colored your view of this? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just me. But yeah, to be honest, it feels a little less impressive than it did. To me, the story is still the meta story, which is the overall depth of the WTA top 50. You look at the top 50 and you pluck one out any given week 
and it's their week to shine. Yes, fair. I just, I want to see a strong top 10. I really do. And I think it's important. Okay. You don't have to respond. I mean, you obviously don't agree. You don't have to go on the record with something you're uncomfortable with. No, I'm just saying I'm just saying that within the last 6 months, everybody these rankings are reflective of 12 months to date. Yes. Within the last 6 months, save for Pliskova, who's coming back from injury, somebody's done something. And maybe you could say Muguruza has been MIA. But they've all had their moments. All right, fair enough. I think it's too soon. Too soon. Yes. I get how dramatic it must be in your mind for this to all kind of collapse right <laughs> after we said this, but <laughs> there is still time. And, you know, the fact that Babs rose from three to two without playing is hilarious. Like, I understand mathematically how it works. Badosa had semifinal points that she did not defend. And it's not that Badosa's losses on clay have been embarrassing. They've been to Sabalenka and Halep. But it is kind of funny because, like, where is Babs? Where is she? Right. And so, so she you, coming? Have, you have a top five player losing to a top 30 player. But that top 30 player is Simona Halep on clay. Right. right. You know, like, there are a lot of contextual pieces to this. And, on and the Simona men's... was playing very well. And on the men's side, this week... Daniil Medvedev could rise to number one after Rome based on how Novak Djokovic performs without playing. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. not unprecedented. Yeah, Novak has to reach the semifinals, I believe. Uh, but back to Madrid for a minute. You mentioned Simona. Pretty early on in the tournament, Ons was the sole top 10 player remaining. And it presented a massive opportunity for her. And uh, probably a long opportunity to think hard about you know can i do this the the draw is is pretty wiped out if you're looking at seeds right she had to face simona Halep in the quarterfinals which is a pretty big hill to climb even if you're the last top 10 player in the draw and she handled it very well right because you are the the highest seed remaining so many of them have gone and you're probably sitting there knowing, well, everybody else that's left could beat me on any given day. But the James Rogerses of the world are out here looking and saying, well, she's the only top 10 left. If she doesn't win this, well, wow, what a lost moment. And that creates the added pressure, right? Okay. I mean, <laughs> I didn't say it until after it actually happened, to be fair. And also, I have watched women's tennis long enough to know that this opportunity will possibly present itself again and again to whoever wants to grab it mm -hmm. so i'll stop being contrarian for a bit here yeah that might Could be you helpful let me breathe for a minute to you and, and the listeners have a conversation huh. um, um do you agree that ons has a good drop shot how about something that we can agree on it's spectacular okay great but no my train of thought has been Put into disarray. Mm. <laughs> uh, so what I was going to say is that, set aside my contrarianism, obviously there was pressure that was going to be felt from being in this situation. Mm -hmm. She's been deep in tournaments before. She's been playing well for a couple of years now without the big, big, big result. When she started to play well, yeah, I mean, I, I won't deny that. I was like, oh, well, this is cute. This is so cute. Kudos to her. But did anybody or how many people really thought that, 
Angebar could enter a French Open and be a legitimate top five threat for the title mm. on a repeat basis. The net effect of her repeated success and consistency over the last couple of years is that she's found herself in a place where there's no expectation, where the fact that she is the first to do this, the first to do that, is no longer a novelty. We can reasonably expect Angebar to win big things now. And with the top 10 seeds capitulating in Madrid, this was a prime moment for her to have that breakthrough. And I think given all that context, her beating Bencic, beating Halep, beating Alexandrova, who I believe had beaten her six times before, beating Pegula in the final, this was a massive achievement. A huge, huge boost to her confidence going forward. Because there is no reason, given the current setup of the WTA Tour, why it cannot be Angebar on a regular basis winning these big tournaments. Now let's talk about this bizarre scheduling day uh, on Saturday in Madrid. It seemed to be modeled after the old Super Saturday arrangement at the U.S. Open. They started on the main court with the women's doubles final at like 1.30 p.m., then the first men's semifinal, then the women's final, whenever that ended, and then the second men's semifinal. The first men's semifinal happened to go three hours and 40 minutes. The women were just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs all day, waiting for the final. It was deeply, deeply stupid. Stupid disrespectful sexist disorganized if you thought that maybe the madrid tournament would present itself better in its treatment of women with tyriac <laughs> not at the helms did not play out no it turns out it's pretty baked in it's a feature not a bug the point is when you have a joint tournament the singles finals should get a start time right the women's final shouldn't just be well whatever time is left Whenever the match we actually care about is done, we'll let you ladies come on court. This tournament was sprawled out over 72 days. The women started their tournament, what, a good four or five days before the men. What is so difficult about finding a definite start time for this women's final? Right, like if you can't do it, just have the final on Friday. They had a day off, and in a lot of non-major tournaments there are no days off there have there simply has got to be a better way all the other co-ed tournaments managed to do it without any catastrophes because then you have the second men's semifinal going on at 11 p.m are you serious to have to come back the next day to play right there was this moment on that day though where you spotted What's his face from Elite? The latest season of Elite? Yes, Andre Lamolia. Well, the or character's Ivan. name. Ivan. Ivan. You spotted Ivan <laughs> from Elite and nobody knew who he was. No, he was at the women's final and the camera just sort of panned the boxes down near the court where there's probably famous people. They made no mention of him and I'm like, oh my God, look who it is. I got an insight into a Spanish actor interaction with tennis this past week. <laughs> Because of the rising success of Carlos Alcaraz. So many of the people I follow on Instagram are male Spanish actors. 
It's just mm. the wages. I I'm, wonder why. I watch a lot of Spanish TV shows right. to work on my Spanish, right? And no fewer than four or five of the people that I follow were doing Insta stories about Alcaraz the entire week. Miguel Angel Silvestre, he was at the men's final. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That is so different from U.S. tennis and U.S. celebrity culture. Like, that just does not happen. Unless you're Serena Williams. That's a good segue to talk about the men's side of the draw. Mm -hmm. We just talked about the fact that the second men's semi started at 11 and ended around 2 a.m. in Madrid. Whoever won would have to come out the next day and play Carlos Alcaraz who had just beaten Nadal and Djokovic successively. I think people really didn't care because it was Zverev, and I don't care either. But what I really want is an investigation into the allegations, not bad scheduling. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. We can have both. We should have both. Yeah, (laughs) I will gladly chuckle at the outcome. However, if that was a player I actually liked, in the second semi, who had to come out and play the final the next day. That's ridiculous scheduling, obviously. And as I said, like, the other Masters tournaments somehow do it, like Magic, but Madrid displayed just, like, a stunning level of incompetency in the way that they scheduled those matches. I will state what you just said a little bit differently. Okay. I will say that that guy is absolutely right to be peeved and upset at what happened to him in successive rounds, being the night match, going to bed at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning to then have to play the next day. That is untenable to ask a tennis player to do that. Will I also sit here and not feel sorry for him and also laugh at his performance in the final? I absolutely <laughs> will. This is your I think we're prototypical yeah. example of multiple things can be true. Yeah. I don't care about him, mm-hmm. right? And I, no, but you were saying like if it were somebody else, I would be upset. Oh, or you know, like mm-hmm. yeah, he's well within his rights to be annoyed by it. That's totally valid. Oh, sure, he can, but I don't really. Who asked you? I don't who? care about his feelings, <laughs> right? Like, uh, he's lucky he wasn't suspended for lumberjack two point Like, mm-hmm. but yeah, like the point stands theoretically. Anyway, uh, you've heard of. Carlos Alcaraz, I I think at this point, uh, he has won four titles now this year. He's the first player to beat the numbers one, two, and three seeds at a clay tournament. He's one of the few people to beat Nadal and Djokovic in the same tournament. The first to do it on clay. And uh, David Nalbandian had actually done it at Madrid in 2007 when it was on a hard court and not to be an asshole, when the feat was more difficult. Right, because, okay. <laughs> and I'm not saying that to be an asshole, but I do desperately need context applied to this tournament. But this is going to be a constant theme on our show going forward, where we try to have you rein it in with the adoration, the adulation, and the expectation on Alcaraz, right? I mean, nobody has to rein in anything if they don't want to. But this is our position. Yeah, meaning this is what you'll be getting from us. <laughs> right. Because this was not Prime Nadal <laughs> at all. I mean, this is Nadal coming back from a fractured rib at like the bare minimum number of weeks off. And he was clearly rusty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't 
play exceedingly well against Goffin. At the clay tournament, he's had the least success at historically, for various reasons. And then you get Djokovic, who himself is not back to his fighting best. Absolutely not. And I do think that Novak will probably look at this tournament as a good sign, as a success. However, you're not getting... I mean, I don't know what percent of Novak you're getting, but it's very far off from prime at the moment. Right, but in terms of the development of Carlos Alcaraz, this context that we're trying to add here with the way we know people talk about the achievement might matter none at all when it comes to his development because what he can take from it might be just enough or what he needs to become even better. Like the, The effect on his confidence from doing this it's not penetrated by this context. <laughs> right. It's That's a very important point. The fact that he rolled his ankle and hurt his thumb in the Rafa match. Rafa ran away with that second set after that. The fact that he was able to come back in the third and win it has got to be a huge, huge boost to the confidence. The fact that you stared down two goats in successive rounds, no matter what their form was, stuck around with Novak for three hours and 38 minutes and still beat him like it and doesn't matter it doesn't even matter what kind of form they were in to be broken once on clay against arguably the greatest return in the history of the game one time over three hours and 40 minutes that's mm-hmm. that's not nothing right so it really doesn't matter what we are going to say that's going to go to his head like that's going to give him confidence i want to talk about the final because oh, do you? the final was so delicious. It was the most entertaining 6-3-6-1 scoreline I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> what, 61-62 minutes? It was delicious. And after the match, that guy goes into press and the second sentence out of his mouth is trashing the tournament and the scheduling as an excuse <laughs> for his performance. Well, well... I- why why are you making me add context to this guy's statement? Like, he, he actually was complimentary to Carlos. Sure. But you knew he was going to go on a rant about the scheduling. And I mean, I would too. Right. I'm just saying that quickly out the gate. Oh, you know, no. like I mean, he gave... Uh, one sentence of praise to start before running into that. And I think he knew just how embarrassing a performance it was. Like, he looked like a ragdoll on court. Alcaraz was drop-shotting him every which way. At one point, I think he was 7 for 7 with drop shots. (laughs) And then on one of them, he brings him up to net. Zverev gets to it. He's all hobbled and lunging and about to fall over. And then, whoops, here comes the lob. There he goes, gangling back to the back of the court, flailing, 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 and has to give up. It was, it's cool to see two winners of this tournament who deployed the drop shot so viciously and heartlessly. Like, at times, Ons was drop shotting second serves and hitting winners on the drop shot. And the versatility that they both have in the shot is pretty crazy. Ons hit a backhand return drop shot that was so high and crossed the net inches on the other side of the court to then almost spin right back over onto her side of the court. Mm -hmm. And it was so ridiculous 
that even she started laughing. <laughs> now, you know that I do not watch Zverev matches anymore. So congratulations to that 19-year-old man. Good job, but I didn't see it. You know, one could also make the argument that coming off a three-set win against Nadal, coming back against a three-hour, 40-minute match against Djokovic the following day, that maybe Alcaraz was going to be depleted himself. Like, right. what would he you have would, to give in this you would final? Think so. And that was not an issue at all. Which clearly, uh, I mean, speaks to his conditioning, but also speaks to his age. There was a time where, well, Novak at his best in 2021 probably still could do that but Novak there was a time that where age was gasping for air yes. and retiring from matches yes no i mean he got more fit as he got older but uh you know in 2009 australian open rafa should have had nothing to give in the final after that classic semi against verdasco uh, that's not the reality anymore if you're 35 years old mm-hmm. that is not zverev's age no no it's not i see how you're rubbing that in again it was kind of cool that Alcaraz has been able to go on this run after all the expectations coming off of his win in Miami. To be able to, mm-hmm. to win two big tournaments on home soil in the clay season, despite and with all those expectations, that's, that is probably the most impressive part of it for me. Mm. The other thing I've noticed even further is just how limited that guy's game is. Like, there is nothing world-beating about that game and this is why it becomes even more exposed in best of five matches at majors yeah i I mean in best of three he has beaten everybody right he's beaten all the greats that he faced and he's won big tournaments he won what like five or six tournaments last year even he's effective but in longer matches like people know how to expose his weaknesses you just described his game as effective that is the best you can say about it when it's well, going well. It's not beautiful. There's right? nothing like, exciting about it. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing revolutionary, nothing game-changing, nothing that merits the hype that he has given himself, that he believes of himself. It's a complete no for me all across the board. <laughs> Carlos won Miami. He won Barcelona. He won Madrid. Two of those are Masters 1000s. Ego won three in a row. Of those big tournaments. Mm-hmm. You know, like, again... Why are this, we still comparing the two, Right, though? no, but again, this is a moment to point out the discrepancy in the hype. I think it's still worthy of discussion. Okay. I've, we've we don't have to have a, a long lot. discussion about it. I'm just saying, again, watch what's going on and keep that in mind. Also at this tournament, Andy Murray won his first clay court match in five years, beating Dominic Team in straight sets. He follows with a win over Shapovalov before pulling out with illness before his match with Djokovic. And that would have been their first matchup in a long time. Dominic Team is still struggling in his return. It seems that he's getting a bit better with each match. But again today in Rome, he lost his first match going out in straight sets to Fabio Fonini. Yeah, not a great draw, obviously. Even if Fabio is old, it is Rome. Dominic has now lost his last nine matches on tour, which is crazy to say out loud. He's had to kind of rework his forehand because of his wrist issues. And it does not look good. It doesn't look good, but it could get better. And for someone of his talent, like you just have to believe that he'll get there. 
Mm. Stan Wawrinka, another one on the comeback trail, gets his first win since February of 2021. And it was a good one over Riley Opelka in Rome, who last year was a semifinalist in Rome. Shout out to Felix Auger Eliasim, who after a stretch of disappointing results, I would say, he issued some full-on whoopings in Madrid. Beatdowns of Christian Garin and Yannick Sinner in lopsided scorelines before eventually losing, unforgivably, to that guy. <laughs> and uh, Zverev actually said it was probably the best match he's played all year. He saved it for Felix. Well, isn't that nice? I know, right? Felix opens against Davidovich in Rome, which is a, certainly a tough out and on the more traditional, slower clay of Rome. That's going to be happening on Pietrangeli. Oh, it's already tomorrow. Mm. And it might be going on the same time as a matchup between two Canadian born women of Romanian descent whose first major title was the United States Open at 19 years old. Wow, that's they have um, a lot in common. They do. Demographically. <laughs> I can't take full credit for that. I saw a tweet about that oh, okay. the other day. I don't quite remember who it was, but that's crazy. Like, they really yeah. do have a lot in common. Yeah. Bianca, for her part, is on the comeback trail. She's been very open about uh, kind of where her head has been over the past few years. You know, she took a long time away from the sport with injuries, but it wasn't only injuries, right? It was sort of struggling a bit mentally, trying to figure out what role tennis played in her life and if it would continue to play a role at all. Like she admitted that she thought about uh, pausing her tennis career or walking away from it. And a lot of it was learning how to not assign all of her self-worth based on tennis results. And so she, in the interim, uh, volunteered at Sick Kids Hospital, which in Toronto is uh, the short form version of the hospital for sick children. And she volunteered at a... It sounds really bad, doesn't sick it? Sick kids, yeah. Everybody... It sounds really bad. Like, people in Ontario know what that is. when um, we use that as shorthand, but... And that's actually how they're branded. But it's, yeah, it's called the Hospital for Sick Children. Uh, and she volunteered at a domestic violence shelter for women. And, you know, it is so refreshing to hear somebody speak openly about domestic violence and actually go there and do the work. The rest of this episode is just going to be a hodgepodge just throwing out information that we've collected on this <laughs> yes. agenda. Um, Daniel Medvedev is going to return to tennis next week in Geneva. I thought that he was going to be missing the French Open. I thought that his entire clay season was done. I don't know why I thought yeah, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he ever confirmed it. I think people were sort of speculating, oh, he'll probably skip clay because he doesn't like it. Kevin Anderson has announced his retirement from tennis. He tore his meniscus a few years ago, and he got surgery, he was out for a long time, won a title upon his return, but it's been quite a struggle since. He's a two-time runner-up at majors, losing the 2017 US Open final to Nadal, and then the Wimbledon final in 2018 to Djokovic. He won seven career titles, the biggest being Vienna, which was a 500 tournament reaching a career high of number five. And he also did the public service of staving off John Isner in the Wimbledon semifinal 
for nearly seven hours to save us from that calamity. He fought for us for seven hours on course to prevent Isner from reaching a major final. He's also been one of the very few ATP players who have been publicly supportive of LGBT people. Mm -hmm. He's been active uh, with environmental causes. He's famous for his wife. (laughs) She has a very active presence on Twitter. And their dog. And now they have an actual human baby too. (laughs) You can go back into the TBS archives and you can listen to us speak to Kevin in Cincinnati a few years ago when we were on that ATP gay player beat. Yes. We had an on-site retirement in Madrid with Mark Lopez calling quits on his career. Previously, we'd seen that he joined the Nadal team, but he had he was still playing tournaments here or there. But this week, he partnered Alcaraz in his final ATP doubles event. If you recall, he and Nadal won gold at the 2016 Rio Olympics in doubles. Gilles Simon is retiring at the end of this year. I feel like I've heard this song before. Um, I, hasn't he retired before? <laughs> like, <laughs> these guys, some of these guys do, I mean, I swear they no, do I mean, years-long retirement tours. No, how a long, lot of them are away for a long time because of injury. How long has Feliciano Lopez been retiring? And I use the uh I think it's more how long have we retiring. been expecting Feliciano no, Lopez no, to retire? No, no, they make these sort of oblique comments about retirement and then never do it. Mm-hmm. For me, Simon will always be remembered as one of the noted sexists on the ATP tour, of which there are many. You can make the argument that they all are, even the best of the lot. One year during the French Open, he was quoted as saying the male players spent twice as long on court at Roland Garros as the women. The equality in salaries isn't something that works in sport. Men's tennis remains more attractive than women's tennis at the moment. Sharapova was asked about it, and she responded, I'm sure there are a few more people who watch my matches than his. (laughs) To which he said, she deserves to make more money than me. And I have to ask, well, which is it? See, these arguments always fall apart, right? They throw everything at the wall. And so the, the initial argument was, the men play longer matches, and they spend more time on court, therefore, we should get paid more. But when faced with the mildest jokiest criticism it's oh oh no 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 i mean maria should get paid more because like people like her more well what if maria played a match in 45 minutes and you played one in five hours right but that logic necessarily means that gilles simon should get paid less because nobody gives a fuck about him nobody's out here watching his matches well so if you make that exception that because maria has more eyeballs on her specifically she should get more money then you should get less well, that's what he's saying. But I thought I thought the issue was time on court. No, he's, his... not, he's not saying that. He's saying that she should be an exception on the woman's side. She should get more money. I should still keep what I get. <laughs> okay. Um, my point is that these these arguments always fall apart under scrutiny, right? Because it's not very coherent. It's always, well, we play longer. Uh, people like us more. The ratings are better. The entertainment value is higher, therefore we should get paid more. And then when confronted with even like a mild criticism, it's like, oh, well, forget about that. That's just an anecdote. And what it boils down to is that this is ideological. Serena responded by saying, quote, she's way hotter than he is, so more people will watch Maria. (laughs) 
Uh, the layers of meaning in that sentence. You have written here that today in Rome, Denis Shapovalov had an absolute shit fit on the court. What else would he call it? He was playing Lorenzo Sonigo. Obviously, the Italian crowd is going to be wild in favor of Sonigo. And it was a challenging atmosphere, certainly. Dennis, man, this kid has trouble controlling his emotions. Clearly. Did he not listen to our 1999 season (laughs) episode to start the year? Baby, you cannot cross the net. I mean, you have been playing tennis for a long time. Don't act like you didn't know that. He crossed the net to argue a mark, like the iconic Martina Hingis did in 1999 French Open. You can't, everybody knows you can't do that. He's talking to what I assume is the tournament referee or supervisor, and he interrupts himself to go flailingly scream at the crowd to shut the fuck up. (laughs) I laughed. I mean, it's not okay. Um, and it was just like, oh, oop, okay. The, he was really hanging on by a string as far as the code violations went. And I have to say, like, the umpire has a lot of discretion here. And it's important that the umpire controls the situation in any way that they can. In this situation, he chose to, to try to de-escalate. And it eventually worked in favor of tennis but it like it did work the temperature went down um in the third set but there there is a scenario where he could have been defaulted he was close to a game penalty time and again we see that dennis's emotions get the better of him in matches he was able to win this match eventually in three sets but like this is not serving your career well in any aspect no it's just like it was it was toddler behavior. It was it was really embarrassing stuff. It was giving he's never been told no as a child behavior. Yeah. It was a tantrum, a full-on tantrum that is not the behavior of a grown, well-adjusted, emotionally adjusted man. Right. So we saw it in Australia this year as well, where he screamed at Carlos Bernardez, you guys are all corrupt, which is my favorite tennis quote in history now, and I will continue to use it for time immemorial. In that match, Uncle Rafa brought him to the net and they had a discussion, if you recall. In this match, Dennis got his shit together. And it was, I mean, the thing is, it was a very, very high quality match. Like it was it was a really tight match. Uh, the tantrums notwithstanding, it was great stuff. He was too strong for Lorenzo in the third set. What I wouldn't have done myself is that Lorenzo goes to the net and basically grabs him and gives him a big hug. Could never be me. I would have been so bitter. No, it could have been you telling the crowd to shut shut the fuck up. Like, that is absolutely something you might have done. Oh, really? <laughs> Come on. Really? Come on. I, I would never be in this situation, like, in front of all these people, so I don't know how I would react. But if I did such a thing, please You'd be roast me. You'd be like, embarrassed. Like, rake me over the coals. And yeah. you would be embarrassed. Yes. And Dennis went up to the umpire and apologized during the handshake and said, Oh, sorry, you know, sorry about that, bro. I, you were just, what did he say? Doing your job. You were just following the rules. rules. Like, okay, dude, it's, it's like a little, it's too little too late. We got word today that the WTA is getting a new 1000 event in Guadalajara, reported in the Mexican newspaper Milenio. We said on a couple episodes ago that according to John Wortham, that it was unlikely 
that the WTA finals would return to Guadalajara this year, that it would probably end up somewhere in Europe. But this is at least good news that the rousing success of that tournament last year will have a future in Mexican tennis. Yeah, this is very... They gave birth to something going forward because we know that the WTA will not be playing any of its fall schedule in China this year. And so this tournament now in Mexico will be able to fill part of that schedule. This is very exciting. Guadalajara put on such a great event at the WTA finals last year that we were hoping that the finals would be there again when they announced it wouldn't. This is, you know, this is the next best thing. It's the first 1000 level tournament in Latin America anywhere. You have here noted that meetings will start next week between Steve Simon and the WTA Guadalajara tournament team. Mm -hmm. We've come to the end of the episode. We're kind of surprised that it's, it's this short. But before we go, we want to tease something that we're working on. We have begun preliminary work on our next research episode, and it will feature one of the people who we think is one of the most important historical figures in tennis who wasn't an actual player, Mm -hmm. who had their hand in many different decades of tennis. All right, that's all you can say. We bought books, we're doing primary source reading, and then we're going to be expanding into newspapers and all that stuff. The the start of this kind of thing is it's particularly exciting because you don't really know where it's going to end up and what the actual form of the show is going to end up being. But we think there's something there, for sure. All right. Thanks for listening to our shortest episode in months. Years, perhaps. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter, tennis underscore John. And I'm James, at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. You can find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.